Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Helper. Are you in search for the perfect health insurance? Well, look no farther because they are the ultimate platform that revolutionizes the way that you find, enroll, and manage your health coverage. HealthBird offers an innovative solution that is tailored just for you. They have a lightning-fast search engine that you can effortlessly compare health insurance quotes in milliseconds. There's no more tedious hours of browsing endless websites or spending hours on the phone with insurance agents. They offer a user-friendly app available on iOS and Android, which puts the power of managing your health insurance right at your fingertips. So again, you know, don't let the complexity of health insurance overwhelm you. Join Helper community and experience a seamless, intuitive platform that puts you in control. So get a quote today at healthbird.com forward slash dealmakers. This episode is brought to you by Bupos. Attention entrepreneurs, are you ready to take your business aspirations to new heights? Allow me to introduce you to Bupos, the ultimate solution for finding and funding your SaaS and subscription-based business acquisitions. With Bupos, you'll experience a seamless and worry-free process. They offer flexible funding and require absolutely no personal guarantee. I mean, again, you can go there, you can explore over a thousand opportunities pre-approved for financing, ensuring that you invest in a business with true profit potential. Bupos has got you covered. Their team actually provides one-on-one advisory support to help you making informed decisions. And on Bupos, you gotta remember, they've already approved over 700 million in funding and they've written over 3,000 businesses, finance hundreds of successful business acquisitions and have an impressive 4.7 out of five stars on Trustpilot. So you should go to bupos.com forward slash dealmakers, and that is bupos as B-O-O-P-O-S dot com forward slash dealmakers. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder, a founder that has done it multiple times and very successfully so, you know, from uh, getting his company acquired, the first one, to his uh, latest one, actually, you know, like he's up to some really uh, exciting things. But the one right before this one, he took it public. You know, at the peak, it was like about 500 million or so, but he got acquired for a sizable amount. So Again, we're going to learn a lot. We're going to learn about fundraising, how to balance that with the way that you go about building your business and other really interesting stuff, as well as the ups and downs of building a business, because it's not, you know, a path full of roses like you would see. And as we know, you know, entrepreneurs. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Ramin Shirani. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Alejandro. Yeah, I'm excited to be here and to share some of my experience. So originally born in Iran, Ramin, give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there and then also moving to the U.S.? Uh, you know, the, 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 <clears throat> back in 70s, 1970s, I was in Iran and I was going to, uh, you know, top schools in Iran and life was good. You know, the, 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 the you know, the, the experience I had as a child growing up and loving the country, loving the, you know, uh, my family. And, and soon enough, uh, at some point, we decided, obviously, to come to United States, primarily for uh, my sister's education. And at the time, I also decided to stay here. 
This was right before the Iranian revolution. And my intention was to go back and finish high school back home. But uh, due to the revolution, we decided that, hey, it's probably best for me to continue my education here. And then uh, the whole family obviously moved here. And we pretty much started from scratch, uh, you know, building yet another life from scratch in the United States back in late 70s. So then talk to us about, you know, that moment of coming here for a better life, uh, you know, from delivering pizzas to anything that you guys, you know, could do to really, you know, go after the American dream. I'm sure that was inspiring, you know, to see your family, you know, like uh, really doing whatever, you know, it was possible to really get that better uh, tomorrow and to go after the American dream. And, and I'm sure that shaped who you are today. Absolutely. Absolutely. So back home, we had a reasonably comfortable life and I uh, was raised in that environment. Uh, when I came to U.S. and after the revolution, pretty much uh, the money dried up, the, you know, uh, and we had to practically start from scratch. I was delivering pizzas uh, to make ends meet. At some point, I started teaching math. I was always very good at math. And I remember getting, you're going to laugh at this, but I remember getting $2.95 an hour <laughs> to, to, to teach math, which was back then the kind of a minimum wage. And uh, my sister started working in college junior. And then my parents, uh, even though they've already put in a lifetime of uh, work, they uh, pretty much started from scratch uh, working in various uh, businesses and restaurants to make the ends meet. So we truly, truly started from scratch. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I kind of paid partial payment from my parents, but pretty much paid for myself through school. And, uh, uh, you know, so did, uh, so did my sister and my younger brother who became a dentist. But, uh, it's, it's truly an American dream. You come here with, uh, little money in your pocket and you go all the way to, you know, finishing school and starting companies and living an American dream. But so it's been, it's been, uh, it's an, it's been an amazing journey, uh, up to this point. And I would love to share some of the details with you. Now, in this case, for you, how did you get into engineering? You know, because obviously you went to uh, UC San Diego to uh, to get your bachelor's there. But uh, that problem solving, that engineering, you know, mindset, where did you get that from? My family wanted me to be a doctor, right? I mean, back coming from Iran, you're either a doctor or an engineer. And, uh, you know, uh, we, have a, we have a lot of dentists in the family. So my mom wanted me to be a dentist. And I, I, I went and, you know, talked to... Uh, various tennis. I went and checked out the program at UOP. But deep in my heart from childhood, I always liked to, you know, play with electronics. I used to sit, uh, you know, for hours and hours building gadgets out of uh, kind of taking my old toys and breaking them apart and building new ones. And, uh, you know, electronics was really kind of a passion. And it was it was a no brainer that I wanted to be an engineer. So I told my family, I said, I'm not going to be a dentist. And probably one of the best decisions I made at a young age, kind of going against the grain. And uh, I, I uh, pretty much going to college, I took uh, mostly engineering classes, uh, you know, excelled at it, and then looked at various UCs. And uh, I loved UC San Diego. It wasn't only about the academics. But also the environment, the campus that I used to play soccer, I used to do weightlifting. So 
you know, it was the right campus that I, uh, uh, you know, that I found that I can feel comfortable for the next four, five, six years of my life. Uh, with the goal, I had a goal of getting a PhD and I was actually in the PhD program. But then, uh, you know, uh, after a few years of getting my bachelor's and master's and being in the PhD program, I decided to put it on hold and come and uh, actually get a job in Silicon Valley. And why Silicon Valley out of all places? Yeah, my family was still here, right? The rest, and we're a, we're a close-knit family. And, uh, you know, my sister, my brother, my uh, mom and dad, and uh, we really wanted to be together. And that was pri- honestly pri- the primary goal. If they were in New York, I'll probably go to New York, right, at, 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 at that age. Uh, but it, it luckily, right, you, you need to be in Silicon Valley to uh, to be, a, you know, you don't necessarily need to be, but being in Silicon Valley gives you a different perspective of being an entrepreneur, right? The resources, the totality of the companies, you know, the Sand Hill Road with, uh, you know, venture capitalists and uh, just the vibe of Silicon Valley is unbelievable. So, you know, I, I didn't quite realize it when I was a young engineer, but over time, uh, I realized what a blessing it is to be in Silicon Valley, to be able to practically go across the street, get a different job, go talk to people, fundraise. And uh, it's been uh, it's been my home since uh, coming back from San Diego. So obviously the first uh, job that you got there was at the National Semiconductor uh, Company there. And um, that was a pivotal moment for you because that's when you stumbled upon the Ethernet. And that was uh, life-changing or I would say professional, you know, career changing for you. So what was so exciting about the Ethernet that, you know, got you so hooked, you know, over the course of time, you know, in your life? You know, honestly, how I stumbled across Ethernet, part of it was luck, part of it was, you know, kind of research and understanding what I want to get into. But National was at the early days of uh, uh, kind of the growth of Ethernet. And I was a young engineer that, you know, regardless of working in a big company, in all honesty, I used to work 12, 16 hour days, even weekends, right? You know, people come to me, it's like, why are you still here? It's like, because I want to learn, right? I mean, I, I finished school. I have this hunger in me to want to learn and do something and impact the industry and grow. So uh, I, I, did, I, did, I did well in the first few tasks that I were assigned. And soon enough, I mean, within, I would say, a year or year and a half, uh, managers there saw the potential in me and said, hey, listen, do you want to get involved in our next generation Ethernet controller, 32-bit Ethernet controller called Sonic? And do you want to take over doing this piece? It's a very important topic. It's a very important you know, project. And, uh, but we think you can do it. And sure enough, you know, I dived in. Worked even harder. I started doing the digital design. Uh, master that. Master that in you know a year, and then they transitioned me to analog design. Generally, you're either an analog designer or a digital designer, but I mastered both. And uh, within a year and a half, two years, I knew that chip inside out. I knew the digital design, the analog design. I could you know the physical design. And I became kind of the lead for national Ethernet uh, controller products. And uh, it was, it was you know, 
an amazing opportunity. And did I did I know where Ethernet is going to end up? To be honest with you, I didn't. There were many competing uh, technologies. There was token ring, FTDI, ATM. But but sure enough, um, you know, ever since I've been involved with Ethernet, right? Whatever Ethernet touch, it wins. Right, they've they've gone from local area to wide area to wireless to, and if you look at internet in general, right, uh, the the fundamental uh, core technology at where the where the people interface to internet, either is through you know their phones or their computers or their servers, but all the primary initial connections are all ethernet. So. Uh, uh, yeah, that's how I stumbled across it and uh, been lucky enough to be involved in it now since then. And uh, every company I've ever done has been some variation of Ethernet, kind of the next generation Ethernet, faster Ethernet, Ethernet for various you know sectors of the market. So um, that's that's kind of where the story goes. So then at what point, you know, in about 96, do you realize that things are different? Because after, you know, close to 10 years, then it's like something hit you. And at that moment, you know, you realize that perhaps you were ready to start your own business. So why why did it take you so long being in the land of opportunity in Silicon Valley? What needed to happen for you to really feel good about, you know, branching on your own? Right, right. So 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 when when Ethernet from went from 10 meg to 100 meg, which was right about, you know, 1991, 92, 93 time frame. I was given the responsibility to lead the next generation 100 meg. And, uh, you know, with, with, with the pieces we had with the involvement in IEEE 802.3, which is foundation of standards for Ethernet, which I was very involved in, uh, we were able at National to be, uh, you know, first in 100 meg Ethernet. We had, uh, we, we grew that, that business from infancy to uh, multi-hundred million dollar sales a year. At, so at the peak, National had 95% market win with a set of products called Cat55 Twister. And, uh, you know, I saw that success. I saw the business success of, of kind of after nine years, 10 years, I kind of grew beyond just looking at technology and getting excited with technology. So I, uh, I looked at that business success and I said, this is amazing. These kind of things can be done. This kind of market success can be achieved, right? And at some point, uh, you know, I, I approached my boss. I was very, very loyal. Uh, his name was Edwin de Souza. And I approached my boss and I said, hey, Edwin, we can do this for ourselves, right? I mean, not this one. We've already done this one, but the next one, right? The, the gigabit or the 10 gig or... And he, he, he said, okay, yeah, we'll do it together, this and that. But he was so embedded in a big company thing. And I kept waiting and waiting and, uh, you know, really good guy. I learned a lot from him, but uh, at the time he, he wasn't ready. So I said, you know what? I'm going to bite the bullet and I go do this on my own. I, there's a lot to learn. I've never raised funds. I've never, uh, uh, didn't even know where to go look for funding. I didn't even, I've never leased a building, right? So, so, uh, so then I came across, uh, some other colleagues who already had the infrastructure. Uh, the gentleman's name was Robert Chen and he already had the infrastructure. He already had some limited funding, but then I joined, uh, you know, uh, I joined hands and hands with him 
and uh, we we really created Enable, which was focused on uh, next generation Ethernet uh, uh, for, but the prior generation Ethernet at National, we did in by CMOS and it was multiple chips, but this one we said we can get it done in single chip CMOS. And sure enough, we did it and we sold the company. I mean, it took no time, you know, three years for what uh, it was worth at the time, you know, a total package of about a hundred million. So for being the first company, quite the exit, I guess what, as, as, as part of that process of getting that company acquired, what do you think, you know, like made it uh, so successful, you know, for you guys to be able to achieve that finish line on a high note like that, you know, what was that acquisition process like? The first chip. Uh, CMOS first chip in, I believe back then, half a micron CMOS technology was one of the most leading edge 100 meg products out there. And at the time, there were, you know, talks of Broadcom getting into this market or they were in the market. Marvel still wasn't in the, in the market back then. And, uh, you know, getting, you know, working around the clock and, you know, having the right team with the technology background we had. Within a year and a half or two of starting the company, we had first fully functioning 100 meg CMOS. CMOS was important back then. Now, nowadays, everything is CMOS, but uh, having it in the lab and first time functioning. And back then, it was about uh, cable reach, right? I mean, if you could do longer cable reach, it shows more robustness of your technology. So uh, the very first chip, very first day in the lab, and uh, I never forget this, right? We plug it in, we connect the Netcom box and we connect 100 meter, it works. We connect 120, 140, 160, 170. Then we stop, we said there's something wrong, right? This can't be so good. There's probably the test equipment is broken. But sure enough, it wasn't. And the chip worked, you know, flawlessly. And at the time uh, we had, uh, you know, a number of companies out there trying to do the same thing to compete in the marketplace. And one of them was Lucent. We were interacting with them and we demoed it. Uh, soon after we demoed it and we got the production version out and uh, they said, we got to have this technology. So Lucent initially licensed the technology. Uh, it, was, it wasn't about acquiring a company right off the bat. And then over time, we got so embedded in Lucent and their programs and, you know, what they were going to go do on the roadmap. It only made sense for us to, for them to pick us up and uh, make us part of their team. And, you know, soon after, uh, you know, that I, I joined Lucent, uh, uh, one of my old uh, colleagues at National, who's uh, Ed Roberts, who was at uh, Lucent uh, independently, uh, and he liked me back at National. He, um, you know, he, he helped acquire the company and uh, 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 he promoted me to be the general manager of a rather large group. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So 
that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. And then after Lucent, I mean, you were there for a couple of years. And then obviously, as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. And then the idea of a Quantia, you know, started knocking. I mean, here, you know, obviously it was a, it was quite a, a tough time for you at the beginning. You know, a lot of no's that you explored. And obviously coming out of such a success like you had, you know, with, with the prior company, with Enable Semiconductor, you know, obviously now, you know, starting up again and, and hearing no's, I'm sure it was really, really tough. So, so walk us through, through, through the ups and downs there, you know, and, 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 and why you thought it was a good idea to go at it again, you know, with, with what became, you know, eventually Aquantia. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, so back in, when I left Lucent, uh, you know, it, it was, it was right about 2001. And it was probably the worst time in the history for us to go raise funds for yet another, you know, high tech startup, the post dot, you know, dot com crash. And, uh, I had, I had a vision of, uh, kind of the next generation Ethernet. Uh, it was a combination of initially, it was a combination of optical, uh, and, uh, you know, electrical, which eventually morphed to be, you know, fully electrical being 10G based T. Uh, but, you know, I felt everything I've learned and also some of the key partners I've uh, had on the side, uh, we had a technology that could fundamentally change the connectivity in the data center and upgrade it from uh, gigabit to 10 gig. And I knew that's very, very important that the ever-growing need for bandwidth, I mean, the trend, regardless of dot-com crash and, you know, the, the environment being tough, the, 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 the ever-growing bandage requirement was there. So we started on that path. I self-funded it for uh, a good period of time. We had consultants. I had some of my co-founders who were putting in, you know, time just for the sake of being involved in the company. But I exaggerate none, right? I heard from 2001 to 2003, I heard no less than 50 no's. Right. I mean, I went on up and down the Sand Hill Road. I went to, you know, VCs in, in the East Coast, uh, uh, talked to individuals, this and that. But the reality of it was I wasn't ready to give up. And once you taste, this is the key. Once you taste being in a startup, once you taste the pace of a startup, once you taste what it takes to build a company, sell the company, uh, you know, it's it's hard to go back to a, you know, corporate environment. I was in a corporate environment post-enable uh, acquisition. And as much as I loved Lucent, loved the people, but I didn't like the corporate structure, right? I, 
I want fast making decisions. I want, you know, fast moving environment. I want to be able to influence the outcome of the company. I don't like bureaucracy. So, so, and again, I'm not saying every company has that, but uh, my experience, uh, uh, you know, at least toward the tail end of staying at Lucent. So, so sure enough, I said, you know what? I'm not going to give up. I continue doing this. We'll self-funded. I've made a bit, bit of money in selling uh, Enable. And uh, then I partnered with other people who had similar vision. And uh, we got the first seed funding from uh, Lightspeed Venture, which was small, was 750K for proof of concept in 2004. And that kind of jumpstarted everything, right? Now we had a VC behind us, a gentleman named Eric O'Brien, who's uh, actually a board member in my current company. He was kind enough back then to give us the 750K and he stuck with us. And uh, after the proof of concept, we got the major funding and, uh, and then the rest is history. And I can tell you about it, but eventually, you know, we took the company IPO. Well, let's talk about that. You know, as an immigrant, you know, to the U.S., ringing the bell in the New York Stock Exchange, you know, having your family there around you. How was that moment for you? Oh, it was, it was amazing. It was amazing. You know, you stand there looking at the crowd, you know, there's all the, all the commotion and, you, you kind of reflect back at your life, right? And uh, all, the, all the accomplishments, all, but, but it just puts everything in perspective. It's like, oh my God, I'm here. This, 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 is, this is really kind of an indication of uh, all the hard work, all the innovations, all the you know, sleepless nights. And uh, ultimately, it's not so much, in all honesty, about me. Right. It's not so much about, uh, you know, personal gains. It is more about, hey, listen, I'm impacting the industry. I'm impacting the world in a positive way to the point that this company is going IPO and uh, ready to serve, you know, uh, a good section of the technology sector with uh, the kind of products that we were putting out. It's just satisfying to be in that position that I've accomplished something that actually does impact people's lives. So then in this case, I mean, the company ended up getting acquired for 450 million plus. Uh, But in your case, I mean, part of the startup, you know, driving the adrenaline and the mentality that uh, that you have, Ramin, you know, that's uh, ultimately what uh, drove you to get going again with Ethernovia. So how did Ethernovia come knocking? Why did you think that uh, it made sense to go at it uh, with Ethernovia? And what is the business model? How do you guys make money with the company? Absolutely. So so toward the tail end of our stay at uh, Quantia, we saw that Quantia was obviously focused on data center enterprise. That was the business case. Our key customers were, uh, you know, Intel and Cisco and so on. So, to, so you know, automotive for us at Quantia was a secondary target. And secondary targets really never flourish, right? Because you have, you have a daytime job and then, you know, partial focus on something doesn't make doesn't make sense. So there's significant interest in automotive. We had various OEMs come to us and say, hey, listen, we want you to build this. We want you to morph your 10G-based T technology to do a single pair transceiver. 
for uh, data communication within the car. And as I learned more and more about automotive and the requirements in automotive, I honestly came to a realization that, you know, uh, at least the nervous system of the car, what 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 connects the brains of the car to the to the sensors of the car is really really outdated right it's it's kind of a hodgepodge of 30 years of putting multiple networks in a car you know uh, some of some of the cars that are even on the road today may have as many as and i know this is hard to believe but as many as 80 80 different networks 30 can, 20 LEN, most, flex straight, Ethernet, you name it. And I said, how is this even possible? I mean, look at where we are with data center enterprise with Ethernet. Ethernet needs to penetrate the car. And, uh, you know, again, at some point in Aquantia, we were at a point where we were, you know, already IPO. The company was on a successful path. So I decided independently to leave. And kind of start thinking more about ether, Ethernet inside the car. Um, you know, some other colleagues I had, they independently left on their own for various reasons. And we came back together and we said, you know what, let's focus on doing an uh, Ethernet-based communication system within the vehicle. Let's bring the totality of our experience from 30 years of Ethernet, 30 years of chip design, and, um, you know, everything we know about Ethernet and the success of Ethernet, let's try to bring it inside vehicle. It's a tall order. There's no doubt. And honestly, if it was my first startup, I would probably not do it because uh, automotive cycles are long. Automotive is a tough, is generally a tough business. But But since I've been there, I've done it, I've done multiple companies before, I said, you know what? Let's dive into it, give it our best shot. We can raise money. We have the reputation to raise money. We know it's not going to be a one or two or three year deal. It's going to be more like a seven, eight, 10 year deal, but uh, we were ready for it. And, uh, uh, you know, we came in primarily to change the nervous system of the car, to make the core of the network Ethernet. And um, it's not just about doing one chip or two chip, right? We spent the first year of Ethernovia. Entirely, right? Rather than doing and starting a chip or starting a design, the first year of the company was entirely about finding what is the problem in the customer application and how could we impact it, not at the chip level, but at the solution level. This is very, very, very important, right? Again, you can go start a company, focus on a single chip. And in automotive, the customers are going to say, okay, come back to me when you have the chip, I'll look at it, right? You're a small company, who cares, right? What we did for the first year, especially hands and glove with Volkswagen, is we looked at the totality of the problem. We realized it's a much tougher nut to crack if you want to solve it in automotive. It's not about just having the right physical layer, the right switching layer. But it's also about how you interface to CPUs and ECUs and GPUs, and then the totality of the software that sits on top of it, and uh, additional hardware and software offload capabilities that you need to have to make sure the whole thing works, right? Again, to give you an example without you know prolonging this, it turned out that you know 
the cars, many cars had 100 meg at the time, but in transition to gigabit, uh, what they realized is that the protocol processing of Ethernet for transition consumes a significant amount of their CPU, which has nothing to do with the nervous system of the car. And the CPU exhaustion, right, for protocol handling, multiple ARM processors trying to do the protocol handling of Ethernet. So transition to gigabit or 10 gig was meaningless. So, uh, so effectively, early on, we realized that the totality of the problem is not just about doing a single chip. So we defined a solution which entails multiple chips, and it entails a layer of software and the necessary protocol offload uh, uh, you know, mechanisms built into this solution. And uh, what, what I, one, one very important thing I want to cover with you is that a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs go uh, to customers and say, I'm going to go to a lot of different customers and I'm going to hear their requirements and I build something. That's wrong. As much as we think it's all correct, as long as even big companies do that, in my opinion, in my book, that's wrong, right? You go to your customers, you learn everything that there needs to be, as long as you have credibility for them to tell you, right? And you then compare and contrast. Then you define your customer's roadmap. If you just do what the customer tells you, they're going to tell 20 other companies. So who are you as a small startup to go out, compete them? So the foundation of building a company, if you're an entrepreneur, if you want to be successful, is you have to have enough knowledge, you have to have enough diversity, you have to have enough system knowledge that you define your customer's roadmap. That's when they respect you, right? And in all honesty, that's exactly what we did in Ethernovia. And for Ethernovia, how much capital have you guys raised to date? To date, we've raised $64 billion. And we're on a path of, uh, 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 you know, in the next, uh, uh, you know, in the next six months to a year, we're on a path of raising uh, uh, in excess of that for kind of an expansion of the company. Uh, and that's that's our plan. Now, you know, you were talking about like there, I thought it was fantastic, the um, the advice on, on how to think about building a company and, and the way to really digest the feedback from customers. So... On that note, if I was to put you into a time machine and I was to bring you back in time to that moment where you were still, you know, maybe, you know, like coming out of, um, you know, university or even better, you know, where you were, you know, like now, you know, thinking about what your next, uh, you know, first company would be while you were working at National Semiconductor. If you had the opportunity of giving your younger self one piece of advice for launching a company, what would that be and why, given what you know now after launching three companies? Right, right, right. So, so as much as being an entrepreneur, having a vision, being technical, you know, having, being passionate, being a good communicator, understanding the market is, in a, is, is important. Those are fundamental traits of a good entrepreneur, right? But it is equally as important to know how to raise money, right? Uh, a lot of young entrepreneurs or myself included back, you know, 25 years ago, they come out and they look for funding, but they really don't know how to structure the funding. Because ultimately, in my book, the companies that are successful, look at Apple, look at Facebook, look at Netflix, right? Look at this, 
a million examples, right? But ultimately, the companies that are successful are, are run by founders who have a compass in their heart, right? And having a compass in your heart means, you know, you not only have the fundamentals of what it takes to be an entrepreneur, but you also have the diversity on, uh, you know, the business side, the management side. And, and companies, again, it's companies like Apple, right? It's all about innovation. It's not about management. It's about the management. All of that is important. Those are, to me, secondary. It's all about innovations and having the company be run by the founders of the company. So, but again, you know, I kind of digress to this, to this topic, but going back to the fundraising, right? You want to fundraise in a way that the founder with the compass in their heart actually runs the company, right? And keeps innovating. And the culture that that founder sets should never be tainted by, in, in again, in my humble opinion, right? It shouldn't be tainted by bringing other CEOs or what have you to try to change the direction or the focus of the company. So how do you fundraise? And I had to go through my set of mistakes. How do you fundraise so you ultimately have enough say in the outcome of the company so you can continue running the company? And again, if you're a founder who cannot run the company, then you need to be you know, wise enough to step aside. I'm not saying you should stick in there, but have the, have the guts, have the uh, you know, passion to want to run the company, create a compass in your heart, do the fundraising in such a way that uh, you effectively have an opportunity to run the company and make sure, very, very key, is that make sure your uh, objectives are aligned with the VC objectives, right? If you go after a certain set of VC, just because they give you money right off the bat, it doesn't mean your objectives are aligned, right? VCs have commitments to their LPs and LPs, you require money back. They don't want to wait 10 years, right? Now, they may out of necessity, but they want to get their money back, you know, soon enough so they can redeploy it. So, uh, you know, again, align yourself with VCs who have, who share your vision and are patient enough for, for especially in automotive right now for us, right? Uh, you know, we've already been into this five years and I know it's going to probably take another three, four, five years before you know, any kind of, uh, uh, you know, major outcome. But we're patient, our VCs are patient. And, and again, on that, on that note, when you start a company, uh, you know, many entrepreneurs go and uh, they, they raise, say, 10 million, 15, 20 million. And by the time it's done, 50% or 55% of the company is already gone, right? What's there to celebrate, right? You just, you just gave control away. You just bought yourself a job. You're, 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 and again, all due respect to venture capitalists, they've been more than kind to me throughout the number of years. And that's why I'm here, right? Because of uh, a lot of people on Sand Hill Road and you know, other corporate investors. But the reality of it is the initial funding of the company, in my humble opinion, should never be from a venture capitalist, right? Because their objectives demand that they take you know, certain ownership, certain control, this and that. And uh, you should find creative ways. And a seed funding of a few million dollar, you know, pre-valuation is just deadly for the company, right? You have to use vehicles like, uh, used to be uh, convertible notes. 
but nowadays it's SAFE, S-A-F-E, and uh, creative ways of raising SAFE from various uh, individuals, corporations, especially corporate partners. If your vision is to go after something, you can always find a corporate partner to support you, and they're less valuation sensitive. So really approach the fundraising with uh, as much ingenuity and uh, smartness as you do your business case, and make sure you raise the money in such a way that you don't give the company away. I mean, 10 years, 15 years of your life, and if uh, you don't have a say in the outcome, if you don't have enough ownership, it's, it's still a good experience, right? It's not bad, right? It's maybe, maybe you do it once, but, but the reality of it is if you're smart, you fundraise for success to start with. I love that. So, Ramin, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? The best way, the best way, I have a LinkedIn profile. So if you have a LinkedIn, which I'm sure most of you do, please don't hesitate to send me a, you know, a note or a message. Uh, I'm open. I, my, my LinkedIn profile is open. So be glad to reach back out to you. And um, I'm, 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 I'm a very social guy and I, you know, coffee, breakfast, dinner, this, that. And as busy as I am, I always make time for people. So uh, if, you know, if it makes sense and there's, you know, reach out to me and be glad to uh, be glad to help you. Amazing. Well, Ramin, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you very much for your time. And thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to kind of share with you some of my experience. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.